The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. looking to God's Word this morning from the book of Exodus, two texts, first Exodus chapter 20 as we're studying the Ten Commandments together and we're going to look at the second commandment in Exodus 20 verse 4. I'm going to read a supplementary word to that from the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't know, Deuteronomy means second law. It's actually another perspective telling of many of the same events as we have described in Exodus, and the passage I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 4 is Moses looking back upon the giving of the law and reflecting on that. First of all, from Exodus 20, the telling of the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 4, the Lord speaking through Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and reflecting some truths to them about what was happening as God did give his law. And by the way, you'll see the name Horeb used in here as the name of the mountain, which is another name for Mount Sinai. It's not a different place. It's the same place. God's Word. Deuteronomy 4, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven 
And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of an iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. This is God's word. I remember one of my earliest Bible teachers in college telling a story one day that has just always stuck with me. At that time, years ago, his son was four, as I recall it. And Tim was a son who could always lengthen the time of the hour of bedtime. Tim knew every delaying trick in the books, how to have another glass of water, another trip to the bathroom, another story, something that would keep from the moment when mom would turn off the light and close his door. And one night that moment was about to come and he whined and said, Mom, I don't want to be all alone here in the dark. And his mom said, but Tim, God is here with you all the time. And young Tim had an answer that was great in its profundity. He would be in his 40s today. I wonder if he's grown into a great theologian because he had the start of it when he said this, but mom, I need somebody with skin on him. Well, it's the need of somebody with skin on him that brings us the second commandment. The second commandment from Mount Sinai is similar and yet also distinct from the first. You remember that commandment one excluded the worship of false gods. We have one true, supreme, unique, transcendent creator, and he alone is to be worshiped. And the idea there, too, that anyone would have an idol before him is at least implied as being wrong. But now, very specifically, we are told you shall not have a carved or manufactured image or any likeness in the heaven above or the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to such things or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. The second commandment actually goes beyond the first in excluding the physical act of worship given to anything that is merely material, and that is a material thing not only representing a false god, which would be ruled out from the first commandment, but even a material image that would somehow be conceived of as representing the one true God. In other words, you might say, well, I I do only worship Jehovah. But then you might bow to some material thing that you say represents him. That is forbidden. And there's this powerful human tendency to put created substitutes in between ourselves and our God and say, if only I have this act of of doing this obeisance to this object, then I'll know I'm worshiping. Even after we've singled out and said, only Jehovah is God, we might be worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Now, some always have the question, is this commandment banishing all attempts at 
visual arts. If it is, it's saying something very big and something very alarming to some people. Is God saying that all drawing and painting and sculpting and photography are wrong? If you only had verse 4 of Exodus 20, you could draw that conclusion. If you did not see the crucial linkage of 4 and 5, you shall not make the carved image, but why is it you're not supposed to make it? Verse 5 is really the operative crux of the command. Don't bow down to or serve the carved out image. Most would understand that if, in, if it is possible in the human mind, and it is probably quite possible, to create things of beauty, objects of art, and admire them as things of beauty and not worship them, not say, there's God, I'm, I'm adoring this, that we are not breaking the commandment to practice the visual and graphic arts. It's the bowing that's the issue. That's why I would say, I hope respectfully, that I think our Amish friends have this commandment completely misunderstood when they would say, don't take my photograph. It's breaking the commandment. It's not the making of the photograph that's the, that's the problem. It would be the worship of the photograph that is the crux of this command. And I think that we would even remember the fact that God, in, in telling the various leaders in the Old Testament how to create and adorn the tabernacle and then later the temple, gave rather specific commissioning instructions for items of art, grapevines and flowers and and other representations to be artistically put upon his very place of worship without commissioning those things and intending anyone would bow down to them. I don't see the Lord as against the graphic arts, but he is certainly against worship of any created image. Now, as we consider this commandment, I need to be concise this morning with the Lord's table ahead of us here, but we first of all would state the main principle of the commandment, and I would say it this way, that all man-made images of the invisible God are absurd. They're banished because the idea of them is ludicrous. Jesus in John chapter 4 said, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Don't begin to have your mind drawn away into the distraction of some physical representation and say, when I think of God, that's what I think of. I've not had the opportunity to ever visit Rome and understand that folks who do go, of course, one of the great places people want to visit is the Sistine Chapel and go in and see a vaulted ceiling larger than this and... uh, They tell me you come out with a permanent crick in your neck from gazing up at Michelangelo's wonderful works of art there. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen it. And you may know that in the very centerpiece of that ceiling is is a depiction of God, the Creator, giving life and His image to Adam, the man. The man is reaching his hand out, and God is reaching his hand out, and the two hands don't quite touch, but it's in the not-quite-touching moment there that that is the great thing. But, but what does God look like in that picture? Well, you, you may be able to even see it in your mind's eye from if you've seen it in books. He's an old man with very long streaming gray hair and a long streaming gray beard, and that is God. 
Well, I don't think Michelangelo has done us any favors, even in his great work, because that's a distorted fiction. God doesn't look like that. And if we begin in our worship to somehow assume that that's the God we're approaching, we're breaking this commandment. Deuteronomy 4 has Moses telling the Israelites after the fact when he was reinterpreting what happened, you saw no form of any kind when the Lord spoke to you. By the way, I I think it's very helpful there in, in Deuteronomy that if you're trying to figure out exactly what did happen on Sinai, the implication is given there that verse 12, 412 of Deuteronomy seems to say, you heard the sound of words but saw no form. I'm not sure that the Bible wants us to understand that all the people at the foot of the mountain understood distinctly every word spoken by God, but what they heard was definitely, whether it was a rumbling of thunder or what, it was something that was in response to the communication of God. Moses heard the words. Moses was the mediator who interpreted the actual words. But the people understood at least God is speaking. God did not set up on Mount Sinai a 100-foot square video screen and say, now I will display my picture. I will awe you with, with brilliant light or some sight that you will see here. In other words, God wasn't communicating the way many, many, many people communicate today when they post their pictures on Facebook of the latest party or gathering or when they send along a video that gets on YouTube. God wasn't using that kind of media. You know, human beings love to make things. I I think of all the things that people in this congregation are capable of making, manufacturing, creating, works of art, sculptures, fine paintings. We have in this room people who could paint wonderful, wonderful paintings, portraits. We have people who could take a bunch of rusted junk from a junkyard and and turn it into a beautiful, shining, classic car. We have ladies and gentlemen both who could take all kinds of foods, fresh foods, and turn it into a delicious pie or a dinner. We have creative individuals who could take boxes of Legos and create some fantastic seven-foot-high Lego castle. Anything you can imagine, I would think we almost have somebody who could create it. And it's not a bad thing that God made us creative and imaginative. But he says, don't apply that gift of imagination to create things that are going to draw away and distract attention that belongs to me. Don't make out of finite materials a representation of my infinity. A little while ago, my wife and I bought a couple new patio chairs And you know the drill, you pay for them, and then they say, well, take this ticket and pull around to the back of the store. And I said to Carol, I bet these come in flat boxes. In other words, the inevitable words, some assembly required. And yes, that's exactly what I got. It wasn't too bad, though. They even gave me the little wrench I needed, and it it went together pretty well. Usually, you see, they need English majors to write the instructions, and they only send engineers to do that, but we got through it, and the assembly required was assembled. Well, there are a lot of people who want a God that has some assembly on their part required. 
One of the ways you know that people are doing this is not that they're necessarily building a physical object of God, but they're, they're saying, they're introducing their thoughts this way. They'll say, well, my God is like, fill in the blank. My idea of God is, fill in the blank. And you see what they're doing? Their God has some assembly required, and they're assembling him before your eyes. Their God is not the biblical God. He's some variant that they have devised. Romans one twenty five says one of the most foolish things a man or woman could ever do is to, quote, exchange the truth of God for a lie and confuse the creature with the creator. Confuse what we are like with what God is like. And because we are this way, God must be this way. The absolutely ludicrous laughable, if it wasn't so tragic, nature of worshiping God by an idol became illustrated right after the giving of the law. If you remember your, your uh, narrative of Exodus, Moses was away receiving these commandments. He was a while in returning. People said, well, who's Moses and where is he anyway? He hasn't been here. We need a new leader. We need some, someone to lead us in religious worship. Aaron, it looks like you're the guy who's left and in Exodus 32, it tells how the Israelites brought their, their gold bracelets and earrings and uh, necklaces and things that they had plundered from the Egyptians, laid them at Aaron's feet and said, make us a god. The absolutely amazing thing to me is that Aaron not only did it, but, and, and God did not strike him dead. Aaron, the priest of Israel, went off and made something and brought it, and it was in the form of a bull calf. I don't know how large it was, but it was recognizably a calf made of solid gold. Now, here's the thing. He probably made a calf because that was a common image in Egypt of virility and strength, but it wasn't brought to the people as if, well, here's a god named such and such from Egypt, Do you remember what Aaron said when he brought the calf? He said, O Israel, here is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Let us now have a festival to the Lord. That golden idol was intended to be a representation of God. Absolutely unauthorized. But the people had their... their ceremony. I don't know what kind of a ceremony. It was pretty chaotic. When Moses came down from the mountain, he heard shouting and and dancing and something near rioting in the camp. And you might remember he smashed the idol and ground it to powder and threw it in the water and made the leaders drink the water for their defiance of God in making such an idol. Putting anything finite and physical in the place of the infinite, immaterial God is absurd. It's a most ludicrous disobedience of God's command of right worship. Well, in the second place then, our text goes on in verses 5 and 6 by saying this, God views idolatry as a form of hatred to himself. You see that? The second commandment says that worshiping visual substitutes brings a curse on those who practice it they will experience unhappiness and confusion that may carry on for generations. Now, by the way, there's a whole side discussion here. It seems to be saying that, all right, let's say great-granddad worships the idol, 
and it says three or four generations will suffer, that people say, well, why should the great-grandchild suffer for what the great-grandfather did? That's not, we think, what this passage is saying. It's saying that that sin tends to get carried on from father to son to grandson to great-grandson, three or four or more generations. Look at the phrase, of those who hate me. It's implying that the great-grandson continues to hate God as he continues in the idolatry. And he's not suffering directly for his great-grandfather's sin. He's suffering for his own sin. As he continues to practice something that is so wrong and so misleading that it cannot give him knowledge of the true God. He suffers for that. I'd invite you to just look around in our world today, and you probably have some notion of what I'm talking about. And think about countries and regions of the world where nominal Christianity has long, long ago, centuries ago, brought in idols and icons and statues and said, oh, people, here, we put before you these visual representations of God. Now, you might say initially the intention was one of teaching and, you know, if you would just look at this, it would make you think of Jesus. Or if you would, you would just look at this, it would make you feel a good devotion for Mary, the mother of God. Or, or look at this or look at this. But you know what happens. The thing, the, the representation becomes the essence itself and consumes all the attention that's intended for God. Now look at countries and regions where this has been the practice in our society, in human society now for generation upon generation upon generation. Visit some of the things you can see in National Geographic and various things on TV, the rituals, the parades in the streets of statuary and relics of dead saints and people slashing themselves and crying and screaming and acting as if they were pagans at some form of voodoo worship as false representations of supposedly the true God are being brought before them. This is not Christianity. And it is not God who is being worshipped. Now some people will say, well, wait a minute, you know, you don't understand. We're not actually worshiping that statue. We're not actually worshiping that skull of the dead saint or, or that, you know, that plaster uh, picture of Jesus or whatever. No, no, that's just an accessory. But let me tell you, you can't get away with that because you have this direct command of God who has commanded that he not be worshiped in such a way. He knows what this will do to the human imagination and how it will simply get worse over time. God certainly knows when he is receiving right worship and when he is not, and he is commanded not to be worshiped by physical images. Someone has to break the chain of all this. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon was kind of an unlikely hero. I don't have time to tell you too much of his story, but when God called him to be a judge in Israel, he was reluctant. He was not terribly well prepared. He was a bit weak. But Gideon had one great praiseworthy thing that he did right out of the chute. His father was an idolater. And when God called him and implanted his spirit in Gideon's conscience, Gideon rose up in the night and went out and destroyed his father's idols. His father was very upset. Who destroyed my idols? He was amazed to find out it was his son. 
But here was one who broke that three or four or however many generation curse of idolatry. Gideon worshipped the true God and knew that meant the elimination of all visible distractions of the true God or of any false God. I praise God that I know we have people in this room this morning who when you came to Christ, you had to step apart from a long-term family tradition of worship by idolatry. And I know that you had relatives who said about you when you did that, oh, you know what? John and Mary, I think they've gone off to that Presbyterian cult. Well, who was in the cult? Who is in a cult when it's a piece of wood or plaster or a painting on the wall to which worship is being conveyed that God says, I forbid it? And those of you who made that Gideon-like stand know the joy of seeing, in many cases, your children and your grandchildren now walking in a heritage of faith and not worshiping what is false. God views idolatry as a form of hatred of himself. It is not adoration. It is actually God-hatred. Why is it that the very leaders of that kind of religion, so-called, end up being the ones that tell their people, don't study the Bible. Don't read the Bible. You won't understand it. Don't worry. We'll tell you what you need to know. Don't study the Bible. That is not true worship of God. Thirdly, let me mention God's two chosen ways of self-revelation. They're not directly spoken of in Exodus. They're, one is implied in Deuteronomy. First of all, I would say to you that the second commandment underscores the vital importance of God's spoken word. For what did Deuteronomy 4 say? At Mount Sinai, I didn't display myself on a video screen. I didn't mail out a DVD to every household in Israel so they would get the message visually. I didn't send it to your iPhone. Even Moses didn't see my face. But you heard the echo of me speaking, and Moses heard the exact words that I said. I am the speaking God, and I make truth known by speaking just as I spoke this world into being in the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He said, let there be, and there was. Now, in a media-saturated age like ours, we say seeing is believing, but that doesn't carry over very well as a helpful byword for Christianity because there are many things in Christian faith where we don't see, and we only come to see as we believe. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. Jesus, you remember, showed himself to Thomas, his Wounds in his hand and side. We spoke about that at Easter. Doubting Thomas, who had to see. He said, unless I see. Well, he saw. And Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. John Calvin said, God does not speak to us every day from the heavens, but he rather gave his scripture as the vessel in which his truth is published 
So one of the things that's really emphasized by this commandment is the importance of God's speaking to us in words. He's the self-revealing God revealed by his word. And in so many words, I could paraphrase him saying, don't look for me in your roadside shrines or in statues or in great paintings. Don't bow before them. Don't pray to them. I am not there. Look to my word. Rich worship, real worship that I accept will be Bible-saturated worship because God's word is the foundation of the girder beams, the roof, the walls, the windows, and the doors of the house of true worship. But there's one other truth, I believe, in this third point. Another way that God has revealed himself, and it's not told in our text, but beyond our text. Remember what young Timmy said? I need somebody here with skin... Only God can present us with a proper image of himself. He's authorized to do that if he chooses to. And he has done that. Not on Mount Sinai. Not in the Old Testament age, for that matter. But in Jesus Christ, God has put before humanity in history, space, and time the real image of himself. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus Christ is is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, in him the entire fullness of the deity dwelt in a human body. Jesus fulfilled the commandment. You see, don't have any visual, fleshly, material image because the one that is going to come that will be that image will be perfect and he will be Christ. Of all the totally amazing things God God ever had to say through the mouth of Jesus, I still marvel sometimes at the directness of this speech. I wondered why they they didn't just kill Jesus on the spot for saying this, those who hated him, when he said in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's the image of God speaking. Hebrews 1 says... God spoke to us by his Son, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. True worship of God is worship of the Father by the Son, who is the only image authorized and appointed to represent what God is. One quick word, a practical thing that this brings forth for us. People often comment on our, bu- our building here at Westminster. This unadorned Puritan-style sanctuary, entirely and quite deliberately devoid of pictorial representations. We don't have stained glass windows of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. We don't have a big head of Jesus on the wall for you to look at as you pray and pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't even have an Alpha or Omega sign on either side of the pulpit. Why, people come in here, and I'll tell you what, sometimes they're actually a little bit mad because they look over this sanctuary and they say, wait a minute, you don't even have a cross in this place. Is this a Christian church or what? Where's the cross? And they're all upset. I even had one man say to me once, why, it's a sacrilege not to have a cross. I said to him this, and I say it to you, Sir, 
You know what the real sacrilege is? The tens of thousands of churches that have wooden crosses as icons on their wall of their sanctuary where the power of the cross and the saving work of Jesus Christ through that cross is never preached from the pulpit. That's the sacrilege. God wants us to worship him by his word and by the image of his son and no other image. God who spoke from Mount Sinai has indeed planned that we would see his visible glory in Christ one day. It will be the last sight, the great sight that introduces us to eternity when we too will see him face to face. Our Father, I pray that you would make us patient saints who can wait for the sight of that which is promised, that which is guaranteed, that which is fulfilled in Jesus, the image of your glory. Lord, keep us from being distracted by lesser things that would take away, dilute, or change, or twist our worship. We pray for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.